0: So Money, episode 1210 Crypto Week continues with a look at what adoption will mean for the world with my guest, journalist Ali Leach, editor at Coindesk. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money.
1: Before Bitcoin was created in 2009, people were still buying you know, drugs and weapons and doing all sorts of things. With, with cash, it's actually... It's significantly easier to get away and, and engage in the various activities with cash. I could go into an alleyway, give someone 20 pounds, and there is no record of that transaction. No one around to see it. Whereas with Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency, it is recorded on a publicly transparent database, and it, and it has to be recorded for it to be processed.
0: Welcome back to So Money. I'm your host, Farnush Tarabi. Thanks for joining us here. Crypto Week continues. This time we're going to be looking at what adoption of cryptocurrency and the blockchain will mean for the world. Is it going to be terrible for the environment? What will this mean for business, for innovation? What kind of a world are we going to be living in where cryptocurrency might be the dominant financial system? The dominant way that we exchange for goods and services. My guest is Ollie Leach. He is the experienced editor and technical analyst at Coindesk, a media platform for exploring how cryptocurrencies and digital assets are contributing to the evolution of the global financial system. In addition to discussing the application of crypto and what it's going to mean for the world, we also explore the world of NFTs, non-fungible tokens. You've probably heard about this term. What makes it valuable, what makes it useful. I learned so much in this episode. Here we go. Ali Leach, welcome to So Money.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Good to be here. This is episode two of our Crypto Week coverage and very excited to have you on the show as somebody who covers the crypto space intimately for Coindesk. Everybody, this is a great resource. First, tell us a little bit about Coindesk and how you got involved.
1: Yeah, actually, I've got a really good story for crypto, actually. But um, yeah, Coindesk, we are the leading source uh, of of crypto media news research. Uh, We've also now got Coindesk TV, so we're also breaking into this space as well. It's it's an incredible company to work for. Um, And yeah, so my story, um, I actually started in crypto about five years ago. Uh, I just graduated university. I wasn't ready to get a serious job, and I ended up working in in surfing and, and in this particular place in North Wales where I used to study. And uh, yeah, I just, uh, this guy turned up there to surf was this uh, guy from Israel called Ittai Malinsky. And he happened just by chance to have this crypto media startup that needed writers. And I was I was getting into crypto at the time. It was just this perfect sort of
0: occasion, really. Yeah. And it just went from there. You are one of the early adopters to crypto. And what drew you to it personally? So I was always really interested in in sort of
1: finance and trading. I just never really found anything that I could sort of get my teeth into. And when I was working at this this place, I was just really interested to see how I could make my wages go a little bit further. Um, I was actually looking at spread betting and other things, and then just just happened to come across an article on crypto. Um, and then just kind of went from there, I just got hooked into it. Uh, it was just a really interesting space I'd never heard of. And it was just like this rabbit hole. I think a lot.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's a rabbit hole. (laughs) (laughs) So on this particular episode, we're going to dive into more about the the impact that crypto may or may not have on our lives going forward. I'm really curious about, you know, the application of crypto, cryptocurrency and, and blockchain. What is holding it back, perhaps, from becoming more widely adopted? And so maybe we could start there. On our first episode on Monday, my guest talked about how one of the biggest challenges facing cryptocurrency currently is adoption. It needs regulation. It needs more institutions and people to embrace it. Would you agree, from where you stand and all the reporting that you do, how would you describe sort of where we are in the history of crypto and the pace of its Application and integration. Are we still very much in the beginning phase?
1: Uh, Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think uh, we're definitely seeing a huge influx of institutional investment this year alone. I mean, crypto's come a huge way in the last couple of years, but really, twenty twenty one. You know, we're seeing uh, major financial institutions like Goldman Sachs opening its own crypto desk, Morgan Stanley, J P Morgan. You know, these these companies are very pessimistic about uh, Bitcoin, offering these sort of. Funds and things like that, companies like Tesla, MicroStrategy holding Bitcoin uh, on the balance sheets, you know, a lot of institutional adoption, you know. And then from regulatory standpoints, you know, we're seeing a big push to make tax guidance clearer. Uh, the IRS, for example, really starting to clamp down, as is Australia, UK, a lot of other uh, jurisdictions. Uh, the ATF travel rule, for example, in Europe is really starting to make uh, KYC, AML clearer in crypto exchanges um so this is, and, and even you know in China recently, this big push to make Bitcoin mining greener. There's there's this whole range of regulatory stuff pushing forward.
0: Yes. Uh, you're in the UK and I'm just curious what is uh, and you know, maybe comparatively, what is the level of hype in, in the UK around this and the maybe a level of adoption? Just curious to know if is it all just happening in the US or is this No,
1: not at all. I mean there's a huge and Yeah, for sure. It's a very vibrant and and growing um, community in London, And, and there are just events literally every day now. Um, especially before COVID, you know, people, it's just getting bigger and bigger. A lot of traditional financial people uh, in that sort of London area are now starting to get involved, which is great. A lot of people just getting into events that have really no background in it, are just interested in finding out more. It's, and it's a really open space. I think that's what's so attractive about the industry is it's, it's very nascent, it's very new and it's accessible to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's actually growing very, very quickly.
0: I asked guests in my first episode. I also want to get your take, Ollie. What do you think makes any particular cryptocurrency valuable? Because so you know, so much of the business news, CNBC, all of it, they they've been surrounding the coverage around the value of cryptocurrency as an investment. But, you know, it begs the question, how can something that is nothing, not associated with anything, right? There's no underlying asset when you're talking about cryptocurrency. How can that have value? Is it valuable purely because it is limited in its quantity? Is it just a supply-demand situation? Yeah,
1: I mean, it's, it's, I guess you have to ask yourself, you know, what do we deem as valuable? You look at something like gold, and it, you know, it, there's very little you can actually do with it. It conducts electricity and do, does things like that. But you know, it, it's a scarce asset, relatively scarce, uh, that is difficult to extract from the earth, and so that we attribute value to that. Bitcoin has this, uh, and other cryptocurrencies by design have a fixed supply. With Bitcoin, for example, 21 million coins. You cannot counterfeit or duplicate coins. So, uh, whereas gold, you know, we see a circulation of fake bars in the market quite a lot, and there's a problem with that. So. Um, from a price perspective, obviously supply and demand play a huge role in that. And like we said, supply is fixed. The demand for a lot of cryptocurrencies, there is an argument. You know, a lot of it is speculative. There's a hope that it will just rise in value because that's what mm-hmm. they do. Um, but there are genuine use cases that, that, you know. So I think that the rises in value it serves its purpose and it becomes increasingly attractive to investors Right. As they see that. Yeah, yeah,
0: I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get to is sort of the purpose of all of this. You know, and. I guess, what are the use cases? Uh, some believe crypto serves more harm than good. I don't know if you're familiar with Bill Maher here. On- <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> In the States, he did a very funny breakdown of crypto. He basically called it this environment-destroying Ponzi, ponzi <laughs> scheme. And he's not wrong, right? It does deploy a lot of cybercrime, online piracy, the ability to pay anonymously, while that may sound... Yeah. Alluring, it can also lead to a lot of bad actors make hiding their steps, you know. And then, of course, you brought up the environmental impact, mining for new cryptocurrency. We talked about that on the first episode. That consumes masses uh, massive amounts of energy. So, what is the use case for crypto that is good?
1: Okay, so yeah, before we get into energy stuff, then, so it's let's look at Bitcoin. It's the world's first. Uh, Decentralized cryptocurrency. It's censorship resistant. It's instant transactions. It doesn't require an intermediary service to to operate, uh, and it has the ability to unbank people in third world countries that cannot access banking uh, or financial services. You just need a mobile phone and an internet connection, which is which is readily available. Um, it's cheap to relatively cheap to send, secure, um, and there's a yes, there is a degree of anonymity. But I think you know. For the the start of the movement, it was all about. It wasn't necessarily about anonymity, but giving people an opportunity to maintain their privacy is important to a lot of people.
0: Right. And and do you think that's why the banks uh, are coming around? Do they? Do you think that there's a level of feeling threatened by this because you, as you described it, it's decentralized. It may not require a J.P. Morgan or even a Federal Reserve. So what? What are you hearing as far as, you know, how the institutions feel about this? Are they like, you know, they were resistant at first. They're coming around to it. Are they scared? I
1: think there's a case to be made that they're definitely aware of it and they're definitely concerned that it has the ability to cause a lot of disruption. Rightly so. Like you said, you know, it's taking away that central control they have over the financial system. But, you know, it's um, I think that's why, you know, as soon as we heard Facebook looking to get into this space, it created a lot of panic. And now we're seeing these central bank digital currencies, some of them use blockchain, a lot of them don't. Um, I think it's one of those cases where they're trying to get into it and, and adapt with the times before the times sort of pass them by.
0: Let's talk about your personal stake in this space. I want to ask all of the guests this just for full transparency. I did mention previously in the other episode, in the earlier episode, that I myself am invested in a particular, uh, I guess it's an ETF that tracks blockchain companies that are invested in blockchain. So that's sort of my... I'm curious. I'm really fascinated by the blockchain. I don't think that's going away. It's like, that's really just the whole infrastructure that I think uh, has a lot of merits and there's a lot that you can do with it. And And so that's kind of where I'm putting a little bit of my money. And uh, so curious, how are you playing this, this market? Uh, how are you participating?
1: Yeah. So um, I, I predominantly you know, aim for, for more established tokens and things like that. I, I don't really invest in, in traditional products. Uh, I'm, I come from a, a, you know, raw crypto background, if you like. And, and so from my experience, and this has been buying tokens from exchanges, um, just a simple, simple strategy of buy, hold and sell. Really, um, like I said, more, more established coins, uh, t- typically sort of like your top 10, top 15. I haven't really got the guts or the, the nerves to sort of go into these brand new projects. I mean, there's there's a lot of money to be made in, in some of them. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I, I like to try and take the, the guesswork out of some of it.
0: Well, thanks for you know being so transparent and also reminding us that you can be in this space with a more long-term approach, this sort of buy and hold Absolutely. mentality, which I think we forget because so much of the news, the headlines is um, focusing on the frenzy and the trading aspect of this. Does that annoy you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean in my experience, like, I, I find overtrading is one of the worst things you can do. and especially the more you trade, the more likely you are to be susceptible to these emotions and getting caught up in this sort of this excitement, this fear, this greed. and, and that's uh, you know what a lot of people would attribute their losses to, certainly certainly me in my case. Um, so yeah, it's very easy. You know, when you see people like Elon Musk, you know, pumping coins, you want to, you want to get in on this and you see people, you know, paying off their college tuition fees with, you know, for something invested two, three weeks ago. It's yeah. So there's a lot of attraction to, to jumping in without looking into it. But I think you can just hold back on that, you know, really do your, do your research. And and this is something that, you know, any, any crypto person should really adv- like advise and recommend, you know, really look into it, look at the long-term goals and, and what the team is looking to do. And that's, that's where you should make your investment decisions.
0: Mm. Later on this week, we're going to talk more intimately about how to invest in this space, if okay. that's something that you want to do. But thank you for that, for that overarching piece of advice. It's so important. I want to talk a little bit about non-fungible tokens or <laughs> NFTs. I haven't discussed this yet in in the week and I think this is a you're, you're a great person to discuss this with. One use case, since we're talking about use cases for Ethereum, which is one kind of crypto, yep. is to buy what are known as non-fungible tokens or NFTs. We've if you're listening, you've probably heard this word, this term flying around. Ollie, can you explain to us what is an NFT and why it is potentially valuable?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's a really interesting space. It's very much just kind of come alive in 2021. So non-fungible just means that it cannot be mutually exchanged for another. Um, These are basically just tokens that represent unique digital assets that have these certain traits and characteristics and make them unique from one another. Um, so you know you can kind of think of it like a collectible stamp, right? So um, a stamp it might have uh, some value because of its its age, its its kind of condition, all these things. And you could have two identical stamps, but if one's condition is slightly better, it would impact its value. And so we take this and we do this in a digital format. And this is and this is kind of what NFTs are. So this is you know it, we've seen more recently this kind of first wave of NFT adoption. It's like digital artwork. You know we take something like you know, take something like the Mona Lisa. And when people say, you know, why are NFTs valuable? Well, look at the Mona Lisa, right? You could take a picture of it. You could wrap it around a canvas and have it on your wall and you would have, you know, arguably just as good uh, a, a copy as the as the real thing, right? But so why does the Mona Lisa cost over $800 million? Well, it's because of the the history, the, you know, all of the things that go into making it this this one-of-a-kind item. And so, you know, NFTs, before before you had NFTs and, and indeed blockchain, you know, if you created something in a digital format, it was it was impossible to find who the real owner was. You could just take a screenshot. You'd have a JPEG. And that's effectively all you need. Um, so now with blockchain, with NFTs, you can actually create something in a digital format. You can attach a token to that, which has this ident- uni- uh, unique identifiable information. It, you know, it's it's stored on the blockchain, which is immutable. So you will have this permanent record that is Publicly accessible and transparent that proves that you are the owner of this of this this item. And people will say, well, I can just copy that. And it's the same argument with the Mona Lisa. You can take a picture of it and hang it. It's just not the same. Right. It's bragging rights. It ultimately NFTs are just good.
0: bragging, rights. bragging um, rights. Um very expensive price for these bragging rights. Some of these NFTs are going for tens are. of millions. Not all of them, which I think is what makes it this headline, right? Because I think there was a, yeah. a piece of art that went for sixty-nine million dollars. Uh, yeah. Later, to find out that a lot of the buyers in this in this market are, I think they're from Dubai, and they're just there's like these holding companies, and they just they yeah. they're like they're making a long-term bet that maybe they're going to be able to pay have this payoff in the future. Um, I think what I like about NFTs, the little that I know, uh, but I did listen to an episode on the daily about this. It was really well produced. Um, I think that. Why I really like Ethereum is because they're associated with NFTs exclusively. And one thing that I, you mentioned is, you know, this, this idea that an NFT can become this unique, this proof of uniqueness for the creator too. So if you're an artist, right, a musician, an artist, it's really hard right now. You know, piracy is a real thing, and Absolutely. copycats, all of that. So this, and not only. Is that the value add for creators to have this sort of established, tokenized, like this is the original of whatever you created? But that, if it gets bought and sold continuously, they continue to make money off yeah, of that right, yeah. royalties factor. Talk about that a little bit, because I think that's also getting to this good example of how we can really use blockchain and crypto for good. This
1: is exactly so. This is and again another thing about creating a token that is programmable. You can program royalties into it. William Shatner, for example, produced all these different NFTs, and he's 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 added this royalty thing into the token. So when that token is transacted to another person, there is that as a proceeds, a certain amount automatically gets redirected to William Shatner's wallet, presumably, or any creator. You know? So it has this this passive income generating opportunity for people like, you know, content creators, musicians, artists, people that ordinarily suffer because they have to pay a lot of their profits to art galleries and to record labels and these sorts of things. So this is directly peer-to-peer you know, that cuts out the middleman, it gives you more of your profit. And like you said, these royalty things, you don't have to go chasing around after your copyright laws and things like that. It's it's, it's completely removing all of that work for them, which is great. Yeah, I think it's brilliant.
0: Tell you what, this crypto boom is keeping a lot of people busy outside of the financial industry, lawyers, legislators, businesses. I mean, talk about how far reaching this uh, let's call it a revolution is in terms of how it's going to transform the way many people work and think.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, let's talk about smart contracts, something that seems quite techy and quite confusing, but it was brought about by Ethereum and that they're, they're very simple computer programs that you can use to create applications that run autonomously. So, it's apps like you have on your smartphone, but, you know, in the back end, there's no company running them. They're just these, these programs. And all they simply do is when there is a certain input, they deliver a transaction. And so what you can do is create, and what we're seeing now, this decentralized finance space that is growing out of initially Ethereum, but now other cryptocurrencies are, are developing their own DeFi platforms. And what they do is, so you can create an app, for example, and every time someone sends a certain amount of money into a certain wallet as collateral, the smart contract automatically churns out a loan to that person. So, you know, you could do that with insurance. As soon as a death certificate, a certificate is is sent to this particular address, it then automatically churns out this, you know, this uh, this amount of money, the, the payment. You can do this, and these smart contracts are in business. All legal contracts could be automated. You know, there's no need for a middleman. You know, there's, there's, a, there's so much automation that can come out of this. Um, and just completely streamline the way we do finance in particular. But obviously, it's, it's got far more reaching uh, applications as well.
0: Going back earlier to something you mentioned in, in terms of use case and application is um, supporting the unbank in this world and so many people who, so many countries that uh, could really benefit from this decentralized, essentially banking system. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you've learned as far as the impact, how great the impact could be?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Africa has been a real hotspot for a lot of crypto companies that are really looking to get in there and make a real difference. Um you know, and and it's with we're seeing we're seeing a lot of people from Africa that that have these smartphones and internet connections, but they haven't got the, the necessary documentation to get um, bank accounts. So they can't get access to loans, mortgages, all these all these financial services that you know developed countries take for granted. So you know, now with with DeFi, like we just said, then you know there's a there's a creation of things called lending apps. So you can actually lend your crypto and earn interest like you would on a bank balance, but but actually, it's significantly higher than a bank would ever give you. You know, we, in some instances, it's anything from 2 to 10 to 15 to 20% per annum. And this is just simply lending your crypto um, in, a, in a relatively low risk risk way, depending on what you mm-hmm. do, obviously, because there are some like yield farming, which does carry a lot of risk. But, you know, it just gives them an opportunity to, to create passive streams of income, which is, you know, for, how would they do that otherwise?
0: How about that? Here we go. You can use your cryptocurrency as collateral to then create c- streams of income. You can lend it out. You can become your own, I guess, bank. Yeah, your own crypto bank, essentially. And
1: this is a, a lot of what people are doing right now. You know, DeFi lending is one of the biggest parts of that particular sector. People are uh-huh. really getting into it. I mean, yield farming is a way of kind of like adding gunpowder to that but obviously it comes with additional uh, risks um but yeah you, it's it's very easy now the, like i said these apps aren't run by any uh company it's not harvesting your data it's just simply an automatics program mm-hmm. takes your money um your money will then go out to different things collect an interest and then a certain amount will be paid back to you so yeah definitely worth looking into
0: I'm learning so much, Ali. Thank you. (laughs) This is is really important. I think that, you know, this sort of conversation isn't happening enough where we're really hearing uh, how the cryptocurrency market, how it touches upon so much and its potential to transform what we take for granted, what we often um, dismiss. You know, we don't, we forget often about these marginalized uh, populations that don't have access to the very things that we take for granted, you know, being able to walk into a bank to get, you know, take cash out of an ATM, leverage, you know, people who don't have assets, right? People who can't become homeowners. If you can own crypto, that can then maybe become an asset to to borrow against. And And I think that's really, really fascinating. And I can see where there is a need for that. You yeah. know, I love, I love when people talk about cryptocurrency in an analogous way, because it is a bit abstract still right did it take time for you to kind of wrap your head around this or were you just so smart you kind of got it right away because for me no. I'm still I'm still learning oh
1: not at all and this is why I you know I'm really looking forward to, to what what CoinDesk and what we're going to do together with learn and we're launching uh, a new platform in the next uh, month or two and it's it's going to be this one-stop shop so when I first started I remember I would look at an article I'd see a bunch of buzzwords I'd have to google those buzzwords it would take me to another article it's all very dis- you know, disjointed mm-hmm we're looking to do like a one-stop shop solution, you know, where it breaks it down, it's accessible to people, it cuts out the noise, it's, and it's really exciting. And, and, and education is is really at the heart of this adoption and how we need to push this industry forward. Because like you said, you know, there's a lot of misinformation about Bitcoin's energy problem, and about Bitcoin and crypto being used for nefarious activities. And it's, yeah, can we touch on that? Is that okay? Well, yes, yeah, so yeah, let's please let's, let's do. Like, okay. so
0: yeah, there's a lot of a lot of news where it's really just capturing the negative stuff. Uh, the The amount of energy that it takes to produce a cryptocurrency to mine that, um, and as, as also like the online piracy, which really confuses me. You know, it's like on the one hand, the blockchain. It and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, how can online piracy occur on the blockchain? Given that. It is traceable. Well, this is the,
1: this is the this is a crazy thing, right? So, right. when people say, "Oh, you know, Bitcoin's used for nefarious activities," it's dreadful. It's this. It yes, it is. But but you also have to look at blockchain. Everything on the blockchain is completely transparent. You can go onto a thing called a block explorer, and you can see every single transaction that's ever taken place on the Bitcoin blockchain and every other cryptocurrency right back to its initial first block called a genesis block, and you know, and and before. Bitcoin was created in 2009, people were still buying you know, drugs and weapons and doing all sorts of things. With with cash, it's actually significantly easier to get away and, and engage in nefarious activities with cash. I could go into an alleyway, give someone £20, pounds, and there is no record of that transaction, no one around to see it. Whereas with Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency, it is recorded on a publicly transparent database, and it, and it has to be recorded for it to be processed. You know, so this is something that I think people, you know, they're they're getting drawn into this small picture without really understanding the the bigger, broader picture. Um, again, with with let's you know, Bitcoin's energy consumption. Yes, it's it uses an awful lot of energy, but you know, look at the bigger picture. It's a complete financial system that is transparent and measurable. You know, it's it's not a part of a system that supports another system. So when people compare Bitcoin to Visa. It's completely unfair because Visa is just one small part of what, you know, supporting a larger financial system, the fiat currency system. You know, there is no way to track and measure how much energy the U.S. dollar uses. You've got to think about every card machine, every ATM machine, every bank branch that uses printers and air conditioning units and the people drive to work, you know, in fossil fuel burning cars. And, you know, we just don't have any idea of the scale that the U.S. dollar uses uh, in energy, but we do with Bitcoin and then people compare it to a country, but Bitcoin isn't a country. You know, if we look at the U S for example, a really interesting statistic, Bitcoin in the U S uses 0.23% of its entire energy consumption. Whereas video game consoles use not 0.25. So more energy is being waste wasted, you know, through gaming than it is through Bitcoin, but Bitcoin's mm. actually creating a decentralized currency. Gaming is just, you know, escapism is something you do for fun for most people.
0: Yes. I have a thought still hanging from the crypto crime that you were talking about and how it sometimes over, it's over it's it's not a a correct picture of of actually what's happening. So it begs the question, we know that there is crime. Like that's we're not saying that crime is not happening in in on the Uh, the crypto world. Where I get stuck on that story is well, we can't we just find out who that fraudster was because everything was recorded and logged. And so are they getting caught?
1: So this is a this is a thing this like kind of partial anonymity of Bitcoin so your public key address the address that you use to send and receive Bitcoin is this alphanumeric code um, and that's kind of all you really know about the person but if there's any way that you can you can um, attach that code to that person then you have a way of proving you know if that person has access to that wallet you can trace it there's been um, so many situations where um, cryptocurrencies but you've been able to trace cryptocurrency and bring down uh rings of you know uh, traffickers in all these sorts of things purely because they use crypto and crypto is traceable you know Mm -hmm. we might not necessarily know who they are straight away but you can see exactly where that money's come from all the way back to when satoshi first released that coin so yeah it's really satoshi
0: well what's your theory on satoshi nakamoto do you think it's an entity do you think it's a person a, a team a man a woman what do you what's your thought
1: Honestly, yeah, I've been doing a lot of writing on this actually more recently. I, it's one of the greatest mysteries of our time, and I think it's what makes Bitcoin so fascinating. It, yeah, I don't know. I think...
0: Why I, be anonymous? What's the deal? What are you afraid of, Satoshi? I think it's almost to create
1: this, to be truly decentralized, you know, it, you have to not have any... It kind of has to be like, you know, almost as ethereal presence. It's you know, on
0: brand. Yeah. It's, 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 it's trying to be on... <laughs> yeah. Satoshi is cryptic because he created cryptocurrency. Exactly. And that's through it. the
1: narrative. Exactly. And, you know, if we knew who created it, it wouldn't have that same that same sort of enigmatic feel to it where it's, you know, how, look how wow. every other cryptocurrency has someone you can trace it back to. So no matter how decentralized it claims to be, you know, there is always one person you can always find that's at the head of it usually. Um, whereas, whereas Bitcoin, we still don't really know. We've got a lot of interesting kind of conspiracies and thoughts and things, but we just don't know. I think you know. I think there's a very strong case for for Hal Finney and for Nick Sabo and all these other people that have been put forward. But yeah, who knows? Well, I guess we'll never know.
0: Who, who did you say? Uh, sorry, I missed that. Who who are these uh, contenders?
1: Oh, so this is just this is just me. So uh, Hal Finney and uh, Nick Sabo. Um, so Hal Finney, interestingly, um, this is a kind of basic spiel on on Hal Finney. So he was one of the first people to. Re- he was the first person to receive a Bitcoin transaction from Satoshi. Um, he coincidentally lived in a town, a small town, where there was another person called Dorian Satoshi Nakamoto. And people think maybe he got the idea for the name from that particular person that happened to live in uh. this town. And this is the guy that, bless him, all the news turned up to his door and, and you know, and started giving him grief. Uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. But he
0: did, buy, he did buy the first Bitcoin. So he's probably a gajillionaire <laughs> now, right? He's, yeah, who knows? He's yeah. doing okay. What do you think is analogous to the crypto boom that we're witnessing today? Do you think that it has the potential to revolutionize our lives as much as, say, the internet? Is there something similar to what we're about to experience in terms of the transformation that this uh, movement will will create? Yeah,
1: I, honestly, I really do believe that. I think where the internet gave us this kind of new era of online services, of e-commerce and you know, all these things that just weren't even possible before the Internet. I think cryptocurrencies have the ability to really take that one step further. Where, with the Internet, we've got this kind of centralization. Like, you know, if you want to use any service or, you you know, any any platform, it's owned by someone. You know, if you want to use YouTube, for example, classic example, These these, you know, these enigmatic, these community guidelines that keep getting people deplatformed. You know, you can take all of these things and take them and put them in a completely decentralized space where they run autonomously there is no there's no data grabbing company behind it it's all very much free for the people like the internet was initially designed you know who owns the internet how easy is it to bring it down probably not that easy it's it's distributed you know it's um we're seeing so many of these cryptocurrency projects with like decentralized streaming media anything you can do normally you can do decentralized you know and like cloud storage and renting out your the the processing power on your computer to somebody else and just so many different unusual utilities for for crypto rather than just buying drugs or 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 speculating on dogecoin or things like that there's so much more to the space that people yes. need to be aware of
0: Let's before we go time travel to the future Ollie let's okay. assume that Crypto has really taken over in terms of being the primary monetary system. What kind of a world are we really living in at that point? Some suspect we'll be in our own version of the Matrix. Are we also witnessing flying cars? Are we beaming ourselves like we're in Star Trek? What is this world? And I don't know if I want to live in that world to be I know, honest. I know right? I saying. like I like you know like driving my car. I know
1: I like to regress right back to how we were originally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I there's there's been a lot of talk of this metaverse, you know, you talk about the matrix. That's a really interesting space um, where NFTs will really come into their own in this next couple of waves of adoption. Who knows where we go? But that's this idea that, you know, it's this ginormous collective virtual space where, you know, you can go and see a live concert in, in virtual reality and then you can go across to a virtual you know, racetrack and watch a race or even participate in a race. And then you can go to some game where you can create a theme park and monetize that structure. And there's just all these different things going on in the same space. And and it will create this sort of 24 seven augmented reality experience. And I think that's a really interesting, maybe a little bit scary sort of future. Um, But I think a lot of it will be automated. Like Hmm. I said, smart contracts have this ability to streamline so many different processes, you know, not just, you know, legal business, but finance, everything.
0: And do you think that it will happen in our lifetime? I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Really?
1: Yeah, I I think it's it's all all moving quite quickly, isn't it? Um,
0: Too quickly, you think? You think? uh, uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I don't know.
0: For somebody who writes about this, who gets a paycheck from a company that is dedicated to cryptocurrency content, uh, it sounds like you are a little on the fence.
1: No, no. so, So I really fell in love with crypto for its kind of disruptive nature, the way it kind of puts power back in the hands of the individual. It's kind of very philanthropistic, altruistic. I really loved it for that. But I think, you know, the applications, people are always trying to make things more streamlined. Easier, create more comfort, and I think that's where the danger is. You know, I think it's great that crypto can unbank people, and I think it's fantastic. You know, the 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 ramifications that it has for, for you know creating, just giving the the regular guy an opportunity to make money. Like NFTs, you can you can you know, kid playing Minecraft doesn't make any money. Well, most of them don't. But now you can you can use those kind of crafting skills to make structures in a virtual world that you can monetize. So there's just so many cool little things like that that I absolutely love. But yeah, this this kind of automation, this constant need to keep pushing harder and harder towards this this unobtainable goal. I think yeah, it's a little bit scary. So there's this, there's definitely aspects of crypto I don't like, but there's a lot of it I do like.
0: Well, we like you, Ollie Leach. Thank you so much <laughs> for spending part of your day with us and explaining all these implications and benefits and drawbacks to cryptocurrency. We appreciate you know the balance here. Um, Ollie Leach, experienced editor and technical analyst at Coindesk. Everybody check out Coindesk.com. Thanks Thanks. so much. Thanks so much for having me. You can learn more about Ollie's work at Coindesk.com. Com. And remember, a third episode today, more on the impact of cryptocurrency, but specifically on how it may be able to narrow the wealth gap and help minority populations get richer. Remember, send me your crypto-related questions for our Friday episode of Ask Farnoosh. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope your day is so money.